0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. It is Tuesday morning. You know what I've realized about Tuesday? It is the worst day for traffic (laughs) in DC. Oh,
1: you're not the only one who thinks that. I had an elevator conversation along those lines. I don't travel very far uh, to get to work, so I don't feel like uh, I have a lot of uh, credibility to weigh in. But it was a longer than average, Three-quarters of a mile journey.
0: (laughs) I'm not complaining too much. I also don't have a long way to go. It's like, you know, 10 minutes versus 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. But um, Tuesday is markedly worse than other days, unfortunately. (laughs) But that is not deterring the wonderful show we have to bring you all today. Take it away, Brianna. That's right.
1: Tuesday is great news day. And it is primary day in New Hampshire. Voters have already begun lining up at the polls to cast their ballots for 2024. All eyes are on former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley, and former president Donald Trump, who are the two remaining Republican candidates on the presidential ballot. According to Monmouth University polling released yesterday, Trump is squarely in the lead with 52% of voter support. Haley trails behind at 34%.
0: Now Trump is leading the pack on the national stage as well. New Harvard Harris polling finds that Trump is leading in a hypothetical general election matchup against Biden, leading by a whopping six points. Now, when you add in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to the ballot, the lead grows to eight points over Biden. RFK Jr. himself is taking 21 percent of the general electorate numbers, which are massive. Uh, Now President Biden will not appear on the New Hampshire ballot today, obviously. We'll get more into the Democratic primary in just a bit. But first, Brianna, um, take a look at those numbers. Actually, I think the RFK Jr. number is—it might be the one our viewers are most interested in. You know, again, we're calling to mind—we're we're summoning Ross Perot vibes here. The last time we had a third-party challenger mm-hmm. doing that well. But uh, but also, the, the general—and, you know, you have to take the general numbers with a, a grain of salt. The numbers in the swing states are what really matter, although those all have Trump up even— Uh, even more so over Biden Uh, Right now if the election were held now Trump would win.
1: Yeah, I mean there's no way around it And that is the story that's let's be frank likely to be the outcome But I do think in in some ways the story here is about the bizarre and perhaps anticipated rise of Nikki Haley I'm looking at the um, uh, the 538 polls over time uh, since around April and it's difficult to imagine uh, that scenario, where you had Ron DeSantis pulling in the mid-30s, Trump has been pretty consistent, although he has gained from opening at uh, the mid-40s to obviously being where he is now, and then you have this whole other cast of char- characters, including up-and-comers like Vivek Ramaswamy, that seemed like really promising quantities. And it wasn't until we got into the debates that I think we really started to see Nikki Haley surprise folks with, frankly, how sort of— Cogent and professional and confident she seemed on stage and that's when she started to pull away and frankly I, I'm still kind of stunned by the fact that she's the last one standing. Now, this is not a substantive uh, commentary on her politics. Obviously, she is getting a, a big boost from the fact that she's representing a more establishment wing of the Republican Party. Even so, though, uh, putting up these kind of numbers against Donald Trump, it, it's interesting. And I do wonder how she is going to interpret the outcome here in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. It's obviously not going to be a win. But is she going to try to flip this into a kind of a confidence vote for uh, upcoming states.
0: Yeah, her um, her ideology, her her mannerisms, her are, are very well tailored to the state of New Hampshire, where there's a large number of independent voters, uh, moderate voters. She has the support of the moderate uh, Republican governor of the state and of neighboring states. You know, talking about the the Northeast, which has a, a long history of fondness politically for socially moderate Republican governors. Frankly, that's what Mitt Romney <laughs> started out as at one point. Um, remember. Uh, John McCain, who was the 2008 uh, nominee, uh, he got the nomination after a, a big win in New Hampshire. Um, I bring that up because Nikki Haley, frankly, is is similar to John McCain in a lot of ways in terms of her Propology. ideology and her temperament. Obviously, being most well, w- what would have been at the John McCain time is not. I don't. It would have been most conservative then. I don't know now that term doesn't have as much meaning for foreign policy, but very hawkish, the way John McCain was, but then perceived to be uh, softer, more moderate, more accepting to—more uh, uh, more friendly to independence than some of the religious conservatives, remember, uh, which John McCain used to fight with. So if you look at it that way, it's, I don't think it's particularly surprising that she's doing well, particularly in New Hampshire. But yes, you're right. She obviously performed well on the debate stage. People got to hear more from her. They found something appealing about her. She is uh, unlike— Vivek and DeSantis um, extremely insufficiently differentiated from Trump that she could maybe actually capitalize on on the not Trump vote in the Republican Party, which is a smaller chunk of the party, but is is not insignificant. Yeah, and, I mean, um,
1: look, I, I get that uh, you're you're being a non-interventionist for libertarian reasons; me being a non-interventionist yeah. for leftist humanitarian reasons. Um, neither of us agrees with Nikki Haley. And I think both of us, if we had to choose, are more inclined to at least be sympathetic to some of the um, protectionist instincts of more of a Donald Trump character. But I I don't know why we can't just appreciate that—you know, I I think it's not surprising that she does well in New Hampshire because of the politics in New Hampshire. No. She's the only one left standing. That is, I'm sorry, in some ways, the big story here. I never in a million years would have imagined that Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race after Iowa, that Vivek Ramaswamy, after all of the ink that was spilled on his rise, was going to be out at this juncture. And I do really think it says something about the kind of lack of oxygen in the room for any Trump alternatives at this juncture, and it's it's some, it's really stunning to watch. And I do wonder what is going to happen as we get closer to the election, if there are these kinds of shakeups with uh, Donald Trump's legal cases, if the fact of him coming back onto the national stage—you know, he's been off Twitter, he's been a little bit sidelined, the mainstream media has decided we're not going to air his speeches, we are going to kind of put him in the box. I heard—I was listening to Pod of America, actually, the other day, which is a you know, liberal, centrist, kind of Obama-era podcast. And even they were criticizing the mainstream liberal media for not showing more Trump, because I think increasingly people are coming to the realization that perhaps the voters need to be reminded about what they don't like about him. And if that starts to happen and people start reacting to the kind of chaos is the word Nikki Haley's been using but the chaos that sometimes follows Trump I do wonder if we're seeing not her bottoming out here or her peaking rather but if there is really a trajectory that might emerge over the next few Yeah months. and
0: typically, I don't think the media should show more Trump speeches because they have some duty to defeat him but sure, just because that is should be journalistic journalistic <laughs> standard practice yeah. the the ostensible reason they're not doing it is because they think it's harmful for democracy right. or it spreads too much information <laughs> which is th- which is the stupidest reason right the ba- the worst reason <laughs> of all yeah. So, uh, but I, it's having the potentially ancillary effect of making Trump more popular because people forget uh, forget his antics.
1: What do you think about the the RFK Jr. of it all? There was a time when um, uh, it seemed like Republicans were very interested in him. The Republican media, I should say, w- was giving him a bit of a platform. Then it was ambiguous whether or not he was hurting Biden or hurting Trump, and it seemed like there was a bit of a flip on him. Now it shows these polls seem to indicate that he creates a widening gap between Donald Trump that is in his advantage. Yeah. Do you expect to see see more Fox News town halls, more uh, Twitter spaces, more platforming of RFK Jr. uh, now that he's an independent?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's important to note he seems to be hurting Biden a little bit more than Trump, given Mm -hmm. that polling breakdown, which maybe actually is counterintuitive, because I think there is some overlap between his base and Trump people. But even if he's not in there, you can't make the case that—I mean, I'm sure some Biden surrogate people are going to are are making that case now and will be if he loses. Oh yeah. But take him out. Trump is still well ahead. Yeah. So you cannot say that. Oh, it's it, the the anti-Trump vote is getting split and that's why Biden screwed. That is not at all what the polls are telling us. And it's
1: even worse when you look at the state by state polls as opposed to the national polls. I mean, Biden has his own set of problems, especially in states like Michigan, where so many uh, Arab and Muslim American voters are just uh, inconsolable and are saying, "I don't even care if he switches course at this point." I've lost too many family, family members yeah. in Gaza. It's been too bad. Um, and I don't know how he's going to dig himself out of that particular hole. I
0: did look at uh, the polling results. So there was there was then another poll that also put in, um, I think, Jill Stein and some other third party candidate, Cornell, Canada, West, Cornell West. And uh, that brought down the RFK number just slightly. Um, so some of those third party people—so th- there are people out there who are— really sick of the two-party system and are, you know, as, as different on some issues as an RFK Jr. and a Jill or cornell West would be, um, are, are done with the two parties and and the failure they have visited upon us and yeah. are—
1: Interestingly, uh, Andrew Yang, who was kind of uh, was trying to start something new uh, with a forward party, he recently uh, endorsed Dean Phillips, who is the other uh, Democratic uh, Party candidate in addition to, obviously, Biden and uh, Marianne Williamson. So weird realignments are happening right now, why he would endorse the, a, a Democrat running as opposed to maybe throwing his lot in with RFK Jr., one of these other third-party efforts. But we'll get more into that and what's going on on the Democratic side of the aisle in an upcoming segment. So stick around. We're rising after this. new polling out of Israel finds a majority of Israelis support a future demilitarized Palestinian state if it's tied to the release of all the October 7th hostages. The Times of Israel reports that 51 percent of respondents said they supported a deal that would see the release of all remaining hostages, Saudi Arabia to agree to normalizing relations with Israel, and Jerusalem agreeing to the eventual establishment of a demilitarized Palestinian state. This week, bereaved family members of the missing hostages stormed the Israeli parliament to demand their loved ones be freed. About 20 people in total disrupted the Monday Knesset meeting with chants of free them now and you will not sit here while they die there.
0: The Times of Israel also reports that the Netanyahu government has proposed a hostage release deal that would suspend the war in Gaza for two months and significantly reduce the number of IDF fighters deployed to the Strip afterwards. This week, a no-confidence motion put forward against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu failed, with only 18 votes in support. Joining us now to weigh in on all of this news out of Israel is Ami Kozak, political commentator, musician and comedian. Thank you so much for joining Rising. Thank
2: you guys for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, Let's dive right into it. Um, This deal sounds good to me in theory, good to, you know, every side getting something they want, an end to violence, return of hostages, some pathway forward. But I guess the question is, is it realistic given what's going on in the political constraints?
2: Well, I don't really understand what the political constraints are given the fact that I don't understand why this hasn't been something everyone has agreed upon from the very beginning, the unconditional return of men, women, and children being taken hostage and kidnapped from their homes in Gaza. That would certainly have led to de-escalation after October 7th, uh, and I don't understand why there hasn't also been a call for the unconditional surrender of Hamas. And as far as constraints go, I think that a lot of people uh, engaged in this conversation are confused thinking that this is about geography when I think this is really about a, an ideological hatred of Israel, the Jewish state and Jews worldwide by the regime that it's fighting, which is Hamas. They don't want just geography. They want to destroy all the Jews. This is their ideology. This is what they say proudly. So any apologist for them, any excuse for them and any illusion that this is a political dispute or a geogra- geographical dispute, I think is very misguided.
1: In 1948, 700,000 uh, Palestinians were driven from what is now described as Israel into Gaza, and their descendants are largely the refugees of that in- initial displacement. What to you, if this is not a geographical or a um, self-determination dispute, as some might phrase it, uh, should happen to the now 2.3 million people uh, who live in Gaza?
2: Well. I take issue a little bit with the uh, fundamental phrasing of the question that they were just displaced out of nowhere as if some usurping population came and kicked them out. There was a UN partition plan to create two states for two peoples as there were legitimate populations of people, Jews and Arabs living in the land. And Israel has accepted it many, many times, offerings for peace and a two-state solution. But certainly what we're dealing with now is Hamas representing these populations and You uh, you lose a lot of moral credibility and uh, political credibility when you seek to destroy the Jewish state. I don't think the efforts here have been about creating a prosperous Palestinian state. They've had many opportunities to do that. Rather, it's about dismantling the only Jewish state that exists.
1: Well, what do you make, then, of Netanyahu's long-term bolstering of Hamas, articulating a desire to displace any more moderate politics to come out of uh, Palestine, in favor of one that can enable him to make the argument that Palestinians don't really want peace? Obviously, there was the uh, famous reporting of suitcases of cash being delivered from Israel to Hamas. Uh, This isn't really a a dispute, right? So, where do you put that as you're trying to come to terms with you know, whether or not uh, Israel is playing a role in the particular politics that have been chosen—not any recently, obviously, the last election was 17-plus years ago—but that has been chosen as a legitimate kind of elected uh, government of, uh, of Gaza?
2: Well, I don't even know if I grant you that. But for argument's sake, if I grant you that somehow, in some twisted way, Netanyahu, who is now politically doomed in Israeli society for being responsible for a massive security failure, somehow wants this to happen or wants Hamas to succeed. Why do you make every effort to shield Hamas of any agency or responsibility for their actions. They're independent actors that have committed atrocities against Israel that seek to destroy Israel. They're very explicit about that. They're very proud about their anti-Semitism and their Jew hatred. So why is that not the first question? Whether or not how Israeli politicians have responded to dealing with them? Why is the first question not leveled at the genocidal regimes that seek to destroy the Jewish state and Jews worldwide? That baffles me. And as far as a a Palestinian state and displacement, you talked about in 48, between 48 and 67, before there was any occupation of any territories, there was no Palestinian state or effort to create one. it was only when uh, Israel had acquired territory in defensive wars that somehow we're talking about um, uh, a Palestinian state uh, that Israel is only accountable for. I don't understand why the immediate impulse is to turn towards Israel to have full accountability when it's the one defending itself against hostility and continued aggression time and time again.
0: So... I agree with the goal of eliminating Um, Hamas—Hamas should surrender in an ideal world, absolutely. Is the level of destruction, however, being visited upon Gaza in pursuit of that goal, is that something that's sustainable, that can go on? You know, what if it's another—I mean, how many more tens of thousands of casualties would it take to eliminate Hamas? Is it even possible—I think U.S. intelligence officials, frankly, have some doubts about whether Hamas is, you know, as an embedded terrorist group, is, is not mm-hmm. equivalent to a state that can actually be overthrown the way Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany is overthrown, in which case, right. all of the death and destruction ends up being not only not worth it, but counterproductive in, in, in terms of fostering more terrorism in the future.
2: Right. Well, so now we're asking a practical, pragmatic, tactical military question, which, let's be frank, none of us in our armchairs in the West are equipped to do. And we still have to remember that none of this would have occurred. Uh, Everyone who has been killed so far in this campaign was alive on October 4th, 5th, and 6th. You have to remember that in war, which is ugly and tragic and nobody wants, who's a good-hearted, peaceful person, doesn't want war. But in a war of defense, pacifism and doing nothing to bring those to justice and rescue the hostages is completely immoral. And as far as what the military tactics should be and how to go about doing it, that's a separate question that... A lot of us here are feel so comfortable uh dictating how they should do it and what they should do i think uh when a regime like hamas which is genocidal explicitly uh, and hateful and murderous is going is still has hostages still has a one-year-old child in captivity and his family fear uh, Bipas, just turned one years old and we're not talking about the pressure to be continued to be put on hamas to to de-escalate this situation and surrender uh i i would hope that the there are people in gaza that can see that when hamas provokes israel and aggresses against israel and this brings about this destruction upon their population they would turn against hamas which some people are doing unfortunately in gaza you don't have a free press and you don't have an open society in which we can hear those voices in israel um we certainly do i've heard uh brianna i've heard you use hara sources many times which only demonstrates a free uh, robust press that we have in Israel that is self critical, that is self reflecting. You don't have that in Gaza, so we don't elevate those voices to see it. When they speak out against Hamas, they're killed. When people speak out against Israel, you just displayed it at the front of this program.
1: Israel has killed over 100 journalists since the beginning of this conflict on October 7th, in addition to uh, over 25,000 uh, civilians. Uh, and 11,000 of those-plus are children. About 70 percent of all of those have k- killed have been women and children, uh, not to mention the devastation that's come from denial of food, water, uh, gas, electricity, medical supplies, etc. that's led to uh, widespread hunger uh, and uh, the spread of disease. So I do wonder uh, if you could weigh in on whether you think that that is beha- uh, appropriate and what, if anything, is the ceiling on how many— children, uh, women, and other innocents should have to die in Gaza before there is an end to the disproportionate killing here.
2: Certainly. I mean, the leadership in Hamas, that's billionaires living in mansions in Qatar, could have used a lot of the humanitarian aid and resources in good faith to help build infrastructure, use all that cement instead of building terrorist tunnels for the purposes of killing and kidnapping Israelis, to build roads, to build infrastructure, to build schools, to provide resources, to provide food. They don't do that. They sit in their mansions in Qatar, uh, are worth billions of dollars while their people suffer. And I think it only demonstrates that the effort here is really not to create a thriving free Palestinian state. It's to dismantle and destroy the Jewish one. You've said it before. You think the problem started in 1948 when the Jewish state was created. So the idea here is not to create a free Palestine. It's to cr- destroy a existing Israel. That's what the goal is. So if we want this killing and this destruction to stop, you need to start investing in re-educating your youth and your children to stop hating Jews, which, which they do, and to stop aggression and attacks against Israel and and stop firing rockets, start investing in your own communities. Start investing in values that the West shares. Start investing in a free open society and spreading those values instead of values of hate and uh, anti-Semitism and oppression. And these are the values that are being spread in this society and these are the things that the uh, Hamas leadership perpetuates proudly. They don't. Speaking they don't of an just, don't investment,
1: speaking of investment, America has invested more in Israel than any other country in the world. It's an affluent country. America gives, in the best of times, 3.8 billion dollars on average a year, and has now obviously uh, uh, initialized uh, billions of dollars or more uh, after October 7th. Uh, to what extent do you think America c- should continue to provide aid to Israel as the international community uh, starts to? growing consensus about the violations of international law that are happening in Gaza.
2: I mean, to what extent there's an academic discussion to be had about the ways in which Western countries should support each other. But the uh, relationship between Israel and the United States strategically is a very valid one, given that we are fighting a lot of these same enemies, a lot of these same radical ideologies that seek to destroy not just Israel and not just the Jews, but the West in, in in its entirety. So a lot of these uh, enemies are linked. So support for Israel in any which way it can, I think, is completely justified. And how America does that in the form of military credits, in the form of actual aid packages to help defend uh, is, uh, Israel's citizens against these terror attacks, to help uh, be a uh, secure strategic ally in the region, in a region where Israel's neighbors certainly wish to destroy it, but also the United States, there's a strategic advantage. So Uh, The America First argument against Israel doesn't make that much sense to me given that America and Israel share the same enemies.
0: Well, and I'll give you the last word here, so maybe you can just respond to this. Um, I, I think the America First concern is that uh, the U.S. government should put—it uh, uh, should not do anything to undermine Israel's security, necessarily, but that the American government is responsible for the security of the people of the U.S. and that more mm-hmm. meddling and interfering in the, East, uh, in the Middle East, as happened in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, et cetera, um, inspires terrorism against. Uh, against Western people, against U.S. people, against some of our troops stationed in these countries. You know, we've seen escalation now in in the Red Sea with the Houthis. And uh, you know, from my standpoint, it's not about—Israel, I think, has every right, or the people of Israel have every right to confront a terrorist attack and to respond to Hamas. But is it making the U.S. uh, safe—more safe to be, you know, along for the ride is the American first concern.
2: Sure. Well, I think there's a lot of, you know, trauma after foreign wars, where in which America does meddle and it doesn't have a strategic interest, but not every foreign affair is alike. And this idea that America retreats and pulls back from things when we share common enemies, as I said, I mean, the Houthi flag, I believe, says what death to America, death to Israel, death to the Jews. Uh, I don't think this is a dispute over geography that America's meddling in. This is an ideological dispute of a clash of civilizations, a clash of values. And so... Uh, to the extent that America can uh, aid and assist in fighting Israel's enemies, which are also its own enemies. Um, I think there's a perfectly just case to be made for that. And I also just want to say, like, you know, it's very important for, for people to have moral clarity on this issue because it's not just the monsters that perpetuate these acts against civilians uh, that should be condemned. But when we have apologists in the West that make excuses for them, when we call terrorists resistance movements and apply that term so broadly as an abstract term to make things that are not alike alike, I think we do a lot of damage and it's just as dangerous to perpetuate those ideas so I think the it you know having this sort of moral confusion and uh, and uh, moral equivalency across the board to every single situation uh, it's perfectly understandable back to your question that certain foreign affairs America should leave to the local places to local countries to deal with but For countries that do share a strategic alliance with the United States, uh, that's a political and military decision.
1: Ami, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's really important for our audience to hear from a Zionist perspective as well.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Shocking new revelations into the potential origins of COVID-19 pandemic as a treasure trove of documents reveal plans by American and Chinese scientists to bioengineer COVID viruses in Wuhan. Documents obtained by Emily Comp and outlet U.S. Right to Know reveal plans to engineer viruses with very similar properties to SARS CoV 2, including a furin cleavage site and a whole host of other aspects uh, in Wuhan, in fact. So, this virus that brought the world to its knees had many of the same features that the scientists specifically sought clearance to do testing on, though the NIH had initially said it was simply testing viruses and viral characteristics. Already in public literature, in her report, COP writes, the new documents reveal that the scientists plan to use new reverse genetic systems and test viruses, in other words, to engineer live viruses with novel backbones. The documents describe the SARS-related viruses to be studied in the grant as posing, quote, a clear and present danger of a new SARS-like pandemic. She adds that early drafts of a grant proposal show researchers plan to test engineered spike proteins in these familiar backbones as an initial test that would help them prioritize genomes for the next step, the generation of synthetic viruses in six pieces. The spike proteins had, quote, pre-epidemic potential. That was a lot of scientific <laughs> mumbo jumbo. So joining us now to discuss further, translate some of that into English, is US reporter with Right to Know, Emily Kopp. Thank you so much for joining us again.
3: Yeah, great to be here.
0: So we obviously like to have you on anytime there's even uh, you know s- a small amount of new information. But I took this to be, despite being very technical, kind of a, a significant finding that this proposal, I believe, called the Diffuse Proposal, that they looked at in 2018 to do uh, research on a on a, a COVID li- on a coronavirus um, and to to give it um, elements that that. Uh, resemble the the virus in the pandemic we came to know and love so very dearly. Uh, go into this further. What this shows us about how these two things could have been connected.
3: Yeah, I mean, Robbie, as you laid out um, quite well, this is very technical, but. Um... Important And essentially the documents that I obtained are the meeting notes and early drafts of a proposal the year before the pandemic to engineer high-risk coronaviruses in Wuhan. Um, and what they show is that while some key features of SARS-CoV-2 that made it into a Um, pandemic pathogen, the worst pandemic pathogen in a century, Um, while they are very rare in nature and we don't see them in related viruses, they were central to the esoteric research interests of the coronavirus experts working with the lab at the pandemic's epicenter. So if we want to get a little more specific and a little more technical, um, you know, these documents are not a step-by-step manual for engineering SARS-CoV-2 precisely, but it gets us pretty close. And so their idea was to engineer novel spike proteins and use them to generate models and reverse genetic systems with which they could design the most dangerous SARS like coronaviruses possible. Um, and specifically, the two features they looked at are features that we see in SARS CoV 2, um, specifically a furin cleavage site at the S1, S2 junction of the spike protein. This is really, I mean, above all else, the feature that supercharged SARS CoV 2 into a virus that has infected virtually everyone on the globe. Um, And they were also interested in receptor binding domains that could bind very well to a human receptor called ACE2. So in more plain language, essentially they were um, screening for just the sort of spike proteins that we see with SARS-CoV-2 where it would be so good at infecting human cells that it would sort of take off immediately, and that's what we saw saw with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and this we know because of um, you know private notes of virologists who favor the natural origin. This was a real red flag for them as well um, that this could be a lab origin. It sort of posed a scientific paradox that the virus was able to sort of become pandemic capable so quickly, um, and so. These uh, proposals um, lay out a recipe for some of the most unusual aspects of the genome that have sort of been red flags for engineering from the very beginning.
4: Um, And the end
3: goal was to engineer high risk synthetic, in other words, high risk lab made coronaviruses and the quote unquote gold standard in the words of one of the American scientists involved would be to identify viruses that could cause disease.
1: So just to be clear, the new documentation is about a grant proposal called the Diffuse Grant Proposal um, that was led by EcoHealth Alliance uh, President Peter uh, Dezak, but that this was a proposal that remained in the proposal stage. and did not go into effect, but we're saying that the existence of this proposal provides some background evidence of the kind of research that people at this lab were interested in and lays the foundation for the likelihood that uh, COVID was lab made?
3: Yes, that's an important um, distinction. This proposal was rejected by the sought-after funding agency DARPA, um, but the significance of these documents is really just to give us a window into the research interests of the scientists working most closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the documents I obtained also show that this work would be relatively cheap. For example, engineering the novel spike proteins would cost about $1,000 per spike protein. Um, So while they were seeking millions um, and didn't receive those millions, this work could be done um, relatively easily. Um, And in fact, that's a reason that they sought to work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology is because it would cut costs. And
1: do we know, Um, sorry, do we know anything about why uh, the proposal was rejected by DARPA?
3: yeah so there is a letter that was obtained by the independent research group drastic that indicates that darpa was concerned about just the sort of things that concern Mm -hmm. us looking at it um you know now in hindsight they were concerned about the viral engineering work um being conducted here and keep in mind the american scientists had actually misled darpa into thinking that um the high risk work would occur in North Carolina and not in Wuhan. Um, I reported on that a few weeks ago. Um, So even thinking that all of this work would be going on in the U.S., they found it to be too risky, or at least according to this letter. um, That has not been, um, as far as I know, independently verified. But that is the reporting that's out there.
0: And, And just because the funding was not granted by DARPA, doesn't mean the research wasn't being done. They didn't it wasn't forbidden to do it And you said it's very cheap it, it I think Ryan Grimm who used to co-host this show has written about this or pointed this out You know it could in sometimes you're 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 doing research and then Either you can apply for a grant to get that, you know Covered after you've already started it or something like that it, it just because this this proposal wasn't Granted doesn't mean they weren't already exploring some of these scientific experiments.
3: Absolutely, and we know through other reporting from Catherine Ebon and others that the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were under enormous pressure to produce. So it's possible that they took the ideas laid out by the American scientists and ran with it on their own independently under um, more lax biosafety standards. Um, I also just wanted to briefly cover another sort of technical thing if your viewers could bear with me. There's also been this claim that there is a smoking gun in the documents um, regarding something called restriction sites. These are um, slices of, or places where viral genomes can be sliced in the lab, but these restriction enzymes can also occur in nature. But scientists discovered in 2022 that a pattern of restriction sites seemed so unusual as to be improbable to have occurred in nature. Um, And the documents that I obtained include a budget line for one of those restriction enzymes, these viral scissors that the scientists had flagged as being unusual in the viral genome. I don't know if (laughs) that's um, able to be followed, but um, I just wanted to call that out. Um, I think that requires some more research and some more debate among scientists, but um, it is an interesting lead in our documents as well.
1: Thank you, Emily. I'm, I'm really glad I took so many biology classes in, in college. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah,
3: glad to be
1: John Fetterman seems to be continuing his journey to the right, at least on the issue of Israel. The Pennsylvania senator made comments on Israel and immigration during a recent appearance with Jake Tapper that ran contrary to his party's base and received plaudits from those on the right. Let's take a look.
5: Because obviously a lot of progressives on Twitter have been attacking you for your position on Israel uh, for noting that, in your opinion, um, saying that there is a crisis at the border does not make one uh, xenophobic. Um, Why do you think you've been so
6: criticized by so many progressives? I honestly don't understand. I, I don't understand why it's controversial to anybody to decide that you're gonna stand with Israel in this situation. I honestly don't understand why it's controversial to say we, we need a secure border. Uh, I've been very clear. In fact, that was weaponized against me as Republicans in my race, that I'm very much a, a strong supporter of immigration and you know, my, my wife's family, I, that's the Oregon story about that. Uh, And I think two things can be true at the same time. You can be very supportive of immigration, but we also need to have a secure border. Fetterman also received some attention
0: following Ron DeSantis' announcement that he had dropped out of the GOP primaries. Responding to an article announcing DeSantis's departure, Fetterman posted a photo of Mickey Mouse dressed as a king with the text, you come at the king, you best not miss. Some took this as a reference to Donald Trump, who's regarded as the seeming de facto leader of the Republican Party right now, though I see it as a reference to DeSantis' own personal feud with Disney, personal and political feud.
1: All right, starting with Fetterman, I'll just say two things. Um, he is not being dinged for some abstraction of having a—wanting a secure border. Everyone in America can say, of course I want a secure border. I don't want dangerous things to come into the United States. Right. I don't want people to be queued up at the border for humanitarian reasons, right. sleeping on streets, being bussed around a city to city. Many people— or Democrats can observe that there is obviously a capacity crisis at the border that needs to be resolved. The question is how it should be resolved, and specifically the indictment uh, against Fetterman is that he literally held out his wife, who was an undocumented immigrant, as a as an indication of his compassion for the plight of the undocumented, at the same time that now right. he's advocating for very different kinds of policies to address the crisis at the border. He is not just someone who is married to someone who is an immigrant. Very specifically, she came here as an undocumented kid. She was a dreamer, who I believe gained citizenship through marrying John Fetterman. So to have had the very personal experience to be in love with someone, ostensibly, who is the kind of person in the exact same situation that so many people you're now allying with on immigration issues are vilifying and would have deported in a heartbeat. That's the hypocrisy. That's the crit- critique that he's getting. But he seems to have flip-flopped on his views because his him, him putting his wife's story out there Seem to indicate that he was going to have a very different posture on these things.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm obviously somewhat out of step with the right on this issue because being very hardline on immigration is a big part of Trump's identity and a big part of where the conservative movement has headed in the last ten years. Some of the change in direction on the Republican Party has been more aligned with me on foreign policy, but on immigration and some economic issues, it's definitely been the other way. I I want, like Elon Musk says, Elon Musk says I want. You know, we want to have less illegal immigration, because we want to have more legal immigration. We want to make it easier for people to come here, Mm -hmm. to work, to participate in our economy, to move freely. Um, and that would be better for everyone that's obvious. if the people want to come here They should be able to do that and that would make our country a better richer place And I don't as I've said so many times I just don't, I don't I'm not persuaded by the narrative that the, the doomerism some people have on the right that if we bring in all these people That's going to be spelled the end for the Republican Party the demographics are destiny great mm-hmm. replacement idea just is not It is, is is clearly not true because the people who come in have a have a mix of values um, some of again some of the people that are that I would say are most hostile to, uh, to conservatism or to what the right wants to do. Their ancestors have been here for hundreds of years, and they're the most affluent people in our society and the most powerful and well-connected and, and went to all the elite universities. They're not the people coming here. But of course, we need to—we want to have—like like you just said, I, and we're not particularly far apart on this issue, really. It's better for safer for the immigrants to not have to come here under these unsafe conditions these marches through the desert relying on um, uh, Gangs and drug traffickers and all those people and I, I understand for people who live on the border on the US side um, You don't want the 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 disorder of having tent sure. cities be setting up sure. having the processing be difficult So we do need to fix all of that.
1: Sure. Okay, so that's that's one aspect of it going on to the Israel question, you know Fetterman is a Free agent. Obviously, he can have whatever opinion that he wants on Israel. But it's worth noting that it's not progressives that are upset with him the way uh, Tapper, uh, Tapper, Jake Tapper, is framing it. Of course, we we are like the left is upset with him because the left largely um, enabled him to get elected in the first place and, and provided him so much political cover and resources in terms of campaigning and the like. But it is the entire Democratic Party, as indicated by this new poll. The Democrats are overwhelmingly supportive of a ceasefire. He is taking an an outrageously fringe position, as so many elected Democratic and Republican leaders are, with respect to Israel Gaza. Fringe in
0: terms of what the voters want. In terms of what
1: the voters want. What else is there? This is ostensibly a democracy, right? So the the Nation reported on this new poll that came out, I believe, last Friday saying, in two—in responses to two separate questions, by a two-to-one margin, respondents indicated that they are more inclined to support a member of Congress who supports a ceasefire and that they are less willing to support members of Congress who oppose a ceasefire. That was from a a survey poll of about 1,000 Americans. Now, keep in mind that that is very different from what the uh, APAC and Democratic Party allies to APAC have been plotting on in, in Congress right now, saying that they pledged to spend as much as $100 million to boost primary challenges against Democrats who back a ceasefire.
0: Maybe he is in the wrong party now, in effect, given what he's But he's are. not.
1: Because the Democratic Party loves APAC, the Republican Party loves APAC, and right. this is another one of those issues where— The Democratic preferences of the majority of the elected are being ignored by a captured group of politicians that are bipartisan in nature and in a bipartisan way are able to ignore what everyone in this country really agrees on or most people in this country really agree on. I mean, in
0: the Democratic side, sure, Republicans are split on the question based on the latest polling The numbers.
1: I saw the latest polling show that majorities of Republicans and Democrats support a ceasefire. It's just something like 80 percent for Democrats and like 60 percent for Republicans. Like I high saw, 50s. This
0: poll I'm looking at shows 50 percent, but maybe it's maybe this is old. Okay, well, still
1: half so. of Republicans want a ceasefire, yeah. an overwhelming it's majority, a, and I think a lot of independents, given the politics of independence, tends to be yeah. less in, uh, interventionist, are probably all on the same, same, right. same page. Right.
0: I wish some of this polling on the ceasefire question would spell out exactly what people want, things think should be that, because I, I agree there should be a ceasefire, what are the terms of that going to be? And I think you get some interesting answers. Look,
1: I, th- I think that's a legitimate question, but I do think that most of the, that polling response is driven by these really horrible images we're seeing out of Gaza. Right. I mean, viral videos of brothers holding their dead, you know, middle school age sisters and weeping uncontrollably. Parents picking up the bloodied body parts of their children and collecting them in plastic bags. I mean, as much as the mainstream media, I mean, Look at the image that we have on our screen right now, complete and total devastation that really belies the idea that this is Hamas being targeted. When you see demolition charges being set by uh, at the IDF for entire residential blocks, watching them right. walk away and then film it on their social media, blowing up an entire residential I mean, residential but some of block. the people
0: who oppose a ceasefire, it's like, I agree, I think if Israel should agree to have no more violence against Gaza, and Hamas should agree to have no more violence against Israel. That would be a ceasefire, right? That would be a ceasefire. It's a—probably some of the people who oppose that don't believe that Hamas would follow through on that. They think there would be further attacks against Israel, so there can't be a ceasefire until Hamas is defeated. Well, the
1: fundamental problem is that that doesn't liberate— the Palestinians from their occupation. And not to mention, of course, even on the West Bank, where there is no Hamas, there have been hundreds of Palestinians killed. Now, an American citizen was just a a Palestinian-American who had visited um, Gaza on a trip, I think to visit family or what have you or uh, for journalism reasons, was murdered over the weekend in in um, the West Bank, where, again, there's no Gaza, there's there's no war, there's no Hamas. And it's not clear at this point if it was by the IDF or by settlers well, who are armed by the IDF and defended by IDF. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later. But I mean, that is what people are responding to. Um, and I don't think that's really about a partisan thing. I think it's about a humanitarian thing. And people just not wanting to see all this death and destruction on their timelines anymore.
0: Yeah. More Rising right after this we we'll New updates in the case of embattled Georgia DA Fani Willis as she fights back against accusations that she acted improperly by hiring her alleged lover to serve as the special prosecutor in the Georgia election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Now Willis has been accused of having an affair with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor, and was set to give a deposition in his ongoing divorce hearings. Her deposition had been delayed until Wade himself is questioned on Willis's involvement in the divorce. Now, during a Monday hearing, Willis's attorney argued that his client couldn't be deposed at all, given how busy she is dealing with Trump's election interference case. The presiding judge did not seem convinced and cut the attorney off. Take a look. on a monthly
2: basis at least 500 or more cases for
6: indictment. So. In this case, of course, the most recognizable issue is that she's dealing with over in Fulton County the election interference text involving former President Trump. Well, I what, Mr. Axel, let me interrupt you. Let me yes. ask you just to focus on the part of the law that says um, the proposed opponent lacks unique personal knowledge of any matter that's relevant. Are you saying that uh, your client lacks unique personal knowledge that could not be discovered some other way? I would argue that she does. that The knowledge that she may or may not have is not unique.
1: But some are arguing this is all just a distraction and that while the allegation against, allegations rather, against Willis are indeed bad, they don't change the merits of the case against Trump. Ellie Mistal at The Nation has argued as much in a new article, writing, The whole thing looks awful, but Willis represents the state of Georgia. She is not the state of Georgia. If she and Wade were kicked off the case or eloped to Fiji or quit to star in the next season of Love Island, the state of Georgia would still have a case. If every criminal trial stopped because a prosecutor was throwing money to some bit on the side, we'd have to open the jails and free a whole bunch of people. All right. What do you make of this, Rodney?
0: I mean, sure, that seems like that's accurate, that the case will still just be brought by different people. I, now I know that the prosecution never likes to have to restart a case because um, it—I it, think it lowers their success. Just tactically, they don't want to do it. But that might be—that's going to be what they're going to have to do in this case. It's fine.
1: Um, I, it's not clear to me that that's— I mean, it hasn't
0: gone very far.
1: Yeah, that's—I mean, I think so it uh, matter. Ellie uh, Mistel—he was arguing that the case is there's already people who have taken pleas in this case it's not something that's—it's it's not going to get started all over again. From You know, we're, we're in midstream. So the implication of what he's written here—and he's a much more knowledgeable lawyer uh, and, and legal journalist than I am—seems um, to be that they would just be on the outs and they would be replaced, which has no real implications for Trump's uh, prosecution, other than, you know, maybe some delays, um, people getting up to speed, etc. But given some of the allegations are that Wade doesn't have any special— Insider knowledge here. It might actually be an improvement for the management of this case. Yeah. And, and 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 Ellie's Ellie's argument here is that Bonnie is bad, and there's no defending her. He makes that very clear up top. But that. Trump's team has also sort of overplayed their hand in trying to say, well, you got to basically drop out the charges against me because there was this misconduct.
0: Yeah. There were more details in Axios about the actual dollar figures involved here. So he was hired for $650,000 so far, $250 an hour is what he's being paid. And, uh, and again, then the— the corruption part of it is that they're alleged to be together, and he they took trips together, and he paid for her trips. So it's a it's a kind of kickback mm-hmm. if, if for her to hire him, um, and then also and then receive some of that money back in terms of the vacations they were taking together. Um, looks uh, looks real bad, and they're not, and no one at this point is really denying that they were, in fact, involved in taking these trips. So that's pretty confirmed now. Yeah, Ellie
1: points out that although she's denied impropriety, she has assiduously avoided denying the underlying claim that she's in a relationship with Wade,
0: which speaks volumes. And in that—so basically, her lawyer was saying there, she can't be bothered with this. She's
1: saving the world from (laughs) Donald Trump. And the judge was like, ah, that's not going to—that's not going to work here. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I actually really appreciated the even-handedness of this nation piece um, from Ellie, because he's—he's very upfront with his feelings. Like, I would love to be able to defend her, uh... (laughs) like, but I just can't. There's just no defending her. And he says that just because it looks like a bad faith hit job, you know, he points out that the person who dug this up was, um, um, was right. the, like the, the political operative uh, uh, yeah for, for who's control. on trial
0: who is one of the co one of the oh um, I didn't realize yes, that yes no 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 he's you know he's fighting
1: for his own life sure, too sure <laughs> sure but just because he says just because it looks like a bad faith yeah. hit job doesn't mean it can be ignored because and he acknowledges this if true the relationship looks a lot like a kickback scheme there's no law against hiring your lover though there probably should be <laughs> yeah. but there absolutely are laws against public craft and you know he points to the accusation that they go on trips together that he's paying for those trips with salary that he's gotten from the job that he wouldn't have had without his lover, and that that is what yeah. it is, and that we shouldn't try to sweep that ass but Devin under the rug.
0: Remember, when she was in the with the church last week or something, <laughs> saying that this right. is this is what they're trying to do to right. black women out right.
1: here. Right, right. I should point out that Ellie Messel is a black man, and yes. you know, there's just there's nobody, I think, no matter what your politics are, that should be or what your race is, that should be defending this. But that doesn't, you, you don't have to, because it really doesn't go to the mm-hmm. question of whether or not uh, the criminal case against uh, Trump should go forward. Yeah,
0: that's fine. I guess. We'll, we'll, we'll proceed. Um, <laughs> this is kind of kind of funny. Story. It's such an own goal. It like, really this is. This was the person in charge of it, and someone who was who had like, what was she thinking it's, that it's, this would not get uncovered and people wouldn't object? It's so obvious that this is a big screw up for you, and and then not it's not good for the case. Maybe it does ultimately change things, but it's not like yes, this happened to our side.
1: Yeah, and obviously, this should not be. A political issue, but let's not lie to ourselves, it obviously is. And the Democratic Party as a whole has an incredible investment in the outcome of these cases. And this case in particular is one of the strongest against Donald Trump. Yes. And, and the he, most and
0: consequential th- because it'll be harder for him to get out of it. He's convicted because it's a state case he can't pardon. Exactly.
1: From it. Exactly. So for them to basically have allowed this to be mismanaged in this way, I'm sorry, it's a searing indictment of what are they actually doing over there and why is it so hard for them to get professionalized and actually execute on any of these plans? I mean, they seem at least rhetorically to have been to, to be hanging the entire fate of the Democratic Party in the 2024 election and this idea that they are resisting de- uh, the the corruption of democracy. They are upholding democracy, and these cases against Donald Trump are really the linchpin of that argument in a huge way. And to not have scoured the country for the very best attorneys, scoured. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia, at the very least, for the very best attorneys to be involved in this and to not have the level of oversight that would have prevented something like this from tarnishing what is otherwise a really important case is negligence of the highest order.
0: Right. I mean, it it, uh, it will cause some people to think that, oh, see the other side's corrupt, too, right. which is the whole, the whole issue. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm sure we'll continue to follow this as it develops, and we will have more rising right after this. Vivek for Veep, some New Hampshire voters seem to think that would be the best case. They're all in for Ramaswamy. According to new polling data, he's leading a potential pack of vice presidential picks at 28 percent, with his closest competition for Trump's vice president being Tucker Carlson and Kerry Lake, who are polling at just 9 percent. Now, those numbers were even higher for a potential Ron DeSantis presidency, this poll being taken before he dropped out. 31 percent for Ramaswamy when, when doing that pairing. For Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, however, seemed to be the most popular VP candidate, with 23 percent backing him for, to be Nick ha- Nikki Haley's VP. Ramaswamy has already endorsed Trump for president. Here's a reminder of what that looked like.
2: Right now, we need a commander-in-chief who will lead us to victory in this war. That is this man standing right here. If you want to seal the border, vote Trump. If you want to restore law and order in this country, vote Trump. If you want to defeat the deep state, vote Trump. If you want to fight inflation, vote Trump. If you want to revive national pride in this country, vote Trump.
0: Hashtag pride.
1: All right, so so tell me, are you at all surprised by those polling results?
0: Um, No, not really. I I uh, think—I mean, that tracks with a a more maybe online group of people um, who—for whom Vivek Ramaswamy and Tucker Carlson and Carrie Lake are very popular um, figures. Um, I I don't think Vivek Ramaswamy is a likely VP VP pick, frankly. I think he might earn a position in Trump's Cabinet. Um, As I said yesterday, I'm at this point feeling Haley herself. Or Tim Scott, um, or maybe Christy Noem, that who is who was also on that list, on um, the South Carolina governor.
1: So I mean, looking looking at this, I mean Haley doesn't stand a chance, right? Uh, in terms of this, just this yeah. poll, obviously, yeah. nowhere nowhere in the running. Vivek, Tim Scott, Ben Carson.
0: I've heard Ben Carson's name. But Again, but just by people online. I, I'm, not, I'm not at the secret meetings where they're deciding these things, but—
1: I mean, and then Tucker Carlson, which is a perennial— People—right.
0: People always bring that up. Tucker Carlson, obviously beloved by fans of Trump, by the MAGA base, uh, most popular um, political commentator on the right, uh, particularly for pro-Trump people, has said over and over again, as definitively as anyone can possibly say it, he has no interest in VP. He has no interest in running for president. He wants to be a media figure. He really doesn't want it. There's just, people just say that because they like him yeah. he has denied it strongly right. Look, and I we're have every why right. would we ever leave this right. spot right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah same <laughs> also not running for president or vice president you said you don't want to be involved in politics <laughs> never anymore again. you, you wouldn't you wouldn't take up the call to serve as press secretary nope. in a uh, never press not secretary. even in a
1: Marianne Williamson never press secretary no. because you, you can't speak for yourself and I'm not in the habit of lying mm-hmm. um t- then okay Sarah Huckabee Sanders what's that about
0: I've, I've heard that name. She was really well-liked, remember, being Trump's—was um, she the first press—she uh, was one of the press secretaries. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, uh, Republicans really liked how she handled the media, um, her very—you know, not like, I, I wouldn't say she was, like, deliberately combative, but just, like, I already answered that question. Yeah. Next question. She seemed to she handle herself her well in that arena. Yeah. She did well. Um,
1: I mean, I get it. It's just surprising to me that and, people and serves, have such long— And she serves as—she's
0: governor of Arkansas.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just surprising to me that people are still thinking about her in that capacity. But I guess it does make sense. She's certainly qualified and would not be—I don't yeah. think she would cause Trump trouble. Speak,
0: and that's the main job of the VP. People who might cause Trump trouble. There's Carrie yep. Lake, yep. uh, who is actually running for uh, Senate in in Arizona, Um so remember Blake Masters. So in the, the last, the 2022 midterms, she was the gubernatorial candidate. She lost pretty narrowly. Um, Blake Masters was the Senate candidate who lost narrowly, and Blake Masters wanted to make another go of it mm-hmm. and run for this um, for this uh, House seat that mm-hmm. opened up. And um, and uh, but for, well, so first he wanted to run for for se- for Senate again. Carrie Lake said, No, I'm doing that. They had some fight about it on a, mm. a phone call. And he said, OK, never mind. She can run for that. I'm going to run for this ho- open House seat, like in the Republican primary, for uh, uh, Debbie Lesko, Republican who retired. Uh, but Kerry be- Lake was so mad that he even dared to think about running for the Senate seat again. She endorsed a different Republican in that race, <laughs> and so did Trump. Oh. So he's I think he's likely to lose that House race.
1: Huh. Well, I mean, you had made the point. Don't um, mess with when her. she That's lost. What I'm saying. <laughs> you made the point when she lost that that she was one of a, um, a slate of uh, kind of Trump election denying candidates that just didn't do well in the midterm elections. And so again, I think you're right, labeling her as part of the group that is not going to help Trump out or at least be neutral. Um, I don't think he needs more people who are invested in, you know, Trumpism or whatever that is, right. he's he's the king Especially of that. Especially not
0: who are specifically invested in the relitigating past elections of aspect of that, that is right. just—that is not— It's not a winning. It's so not a winning issue. It's like shooting yourself in the foot. Um, We wanted to play, we do have this clip of Trump reacting to uh, Tim Scott's wedding announcements. Remember, I said he got uh, engaged over the the weekend. And I I do think Scott is pretty up there as a likely potential uh, VP pick for Trump. Let's play that.
2: We have another one. Everybody knows him. And today was a big story, the biggest story out there. He's engaged to be married. We never thought this was going to happen. What's going on? A very very fine person a man that we work so closely and I work so closely with he was in the Senate he's been there now a long time and one of the most respected people in all of Washington Senator Tim Scott
0: South Carolina I thought it was a funny way to
1: say. It. Yeah, many <laughs> what took you so long, Tim Scott? <laughs> Look, going going out of his way to, to say that does seem to indicate there's a closeness in that relationship, and that's perhaps part of why Tim Scott is uh, second placed on this poll uh, uh, of potential candidates. I am interested about some and some of these people who are rounding out the bottom. Nancy Mace uh, is at the bottom with less than one percent. She is someone who's been floated as right. a kind of more moderate, not as uh, um, intense on the abortion issue, able to play like thread that. Needle Frankly, in the way that Donald Trump has done, apart from obviously the reality of his appointments, um, I mean, she's than others. T-
0: for, for her to even rank, honestly, though, is is, is impressive. For her. I mean, she's a House member. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a huge national profile. I think she's becoming increasingly very well known to you know, D.C. insider people. She mm-hmm. does the the more of the um, the media circuit. She's very available to the press. Mm-hmm. She's putting out a lot of statements. She's becoming better and better known. But I, I don't think that's a not like it's an yeah. indictment of her that she's low. It's actually to her credit that that's she's a becoming point. a more national And I think prominent she presents Republican.
1: well. And I would be interested to see more conversation about her, see what what she says when she's asked about whether or not she'd be willing. Byron Donald is another interesting name on the list, who, of course, um, gained some national prominence over the speakership battles. He was one of the people who at one time was the was the alternate choice uh, mm-hmm. for a speaker, and in the course of that, started doing a lot of media, including holding his own on a lot of liberal media channels, and presenting again, I think, really well, an up-and-coming Republican star. I thought
0: he was incredibly impressive and incredibly effective as a Trump surrogate during the speaker battle and subsequently uh, on TV. He did, a, he did a really good job, and while he doesn't have nearly as much of the national profile as some of these other people we've mm-hmm. mentioned, um, he is— he is really good on television. Um, it would not be, it would not be the craziest idea in the world to put him front, to make him veep and put him front and center.
1: Now, here, the, these next two are very different. Uh, bring Trump very different things. Glenn Youngkin, on one hand, who seems to represent the kind of regular moderate Republican that Trump seemed to indicate that he was going for. And Marjorie Taylor Greene.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Again, Marjorie Taylor yeah. Greene is another Carrie-like type pick. Like, you're just picking the same the same exact thing. That's not adding any kind of, um, like, temperamental diversity mm-hmm. to the ticket. I, I don't think um, that's something to do. And, and, and then Youngkin, you know, he's, he's, he's very well-liked by Republicans as Virginia's governor. He was very often proposed as an alternative to Trump for, like, a kind of never-Trump, movement, which is not that he's necessarily so moderate or anything, but he, he he presents in it kind of like Nikki Haley in a way that is more pleasing to Republican establishments while still having run on a lot of the COVID and school and anti-wokeness stuff, mm-hmm. uh, maybe being a little less hard-edged about it than a DeSantis, but you know, not being some sellout rhino on those issues yeah. either so a lot of good things to say for him on that front but um but i don't think that's what he happen. want it. it's not clear to me that he'd I want it. He wants yeah. it i don't think he wants it i don't think he i think he could have aspirations down the line to be president to, to run um i don't think he wants to tie himself to trump at this
1: yeah, moment that feels right to me all right let us know what you think in the comments and stick around we have more rising for you right after this Congressman and Democratic candidate for President Dean Phillips exploded on mainstream journalists while in New Hampshire this week, saying Donald Trump is the only politician listening to Americans right now.
6: I've said this 18,000 times. I'm only doing this to defeat Donald Trump. Nobody seems to want to do that in the Democratic Party right now other than me, because Joe Biden can't is my proposition, because the data says he can't. No one in the country right now cares. In fact, most of the people in the country are going to the Trump rally right now. Because he's listening to them. No one's asking about this stuff. I'm just frustrated. I hope you understand why I'm getting tired of it. You're doing your jobs, but you're not asking the questions that Americans give a about.
1: Ooh, now, in case you forgot, President Joe Biden will not appear on the Granite States ballot today after he pushed the DNC to move the party's first primary to South Carolina. Even though the president's allies are encouraging voters to write him in, Democrats are worried that he could be embarrassed by high turnout for Phillips or Williamson. What does success look like for them? How are they defining that?
5: I would say that the Biden campaign is lowering expectations about what's going to happen here, but they're really just ignoring what's going to happen here. Are they giving a number
1: at all? Well,
5: privately, they'll point to the fact that there are so few precedents for this. They'll look at maybe Lisa Murkowski running as a write-in candidate, but that was a general election. You had a Democratic nominee, a Republican nominee, and a write-in, so there really is no blueprint. What would be, I think, the danger zone when you talk to Democrats here who've seen many, many, many primaries, they're nervous about this because of what happened in 1968. Lyndon Johnson did not put himself on the ballot. Eugene McCarthy got 40% of the vote. That was a surprising showing for a challenger. And even though Lyndon Johnson won the primary, he was out of the race three weeks later. And so when a lot of Democrats are nervous about President Biden, whether he's strong enough to leave the ticket again, a, a disappointing showing less than 50% here might be a problem less for Biden campaign. Less than
1: 50. Campaign. Now, as I mentioned, Biden is even in danger of losing to Marianne Williamson.
5: you look at the fact that he is the only sort of elected Democrat who is running, Marion Williamson is also here in the state campaigning, I think he needs to finish ahead of her to be sure. And a lot of people here I've been talking to say she might actually beat him.
0: Now, both Williamson and Phillips made their final pitches to New Hampshire voters last night.
2: We're going to offer tuition-free college and tech school, Medicare for all, subsidized child care, tuition-free college, and a and, 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 and guaranteed living wage, a guaranteed sick pay. We're going to turn a war economy into a peace economy. We're going to turn the, the scourge of addiction into the gift of recovery, and we're going to turn a dirty economy into a clean economy. There has been a 50-year war on the middle class and the poor in the United States. I'm Marianne Williamson. We're going to end that war. I'm going to make sure of it.
6: So much work we have to do. We have to protect Social Security for those who are retired and have earned it. Not just protect it, but enhance it. So that's what America's all about. But are we gonna be able to achieve any of these things with the dysfunction and frankly, the current candidates at the top of the tickets? No. That's why I'm running for president. I know how to do this. I'm the second most bipartisan member of the entire U.S. Congress. I came from the business world where you could never succeed by demeaning, endangering half of your customers. You actually do the opposite. You invite people. You listen to them. You learn them. You welcome them. That's what I'm going to do as president.
1: Now, that might be some of the first and only coverage you've seen of the the Democratic primary candidates that are on the ballot in New Hampshire, because the Democratic Party and their media apparatus has been insisting that there's nothing to see here. There will be no primary. This is not the primary you're looking for.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's incredible, especially given all the discernible, measurable frustration with Joe Biden in his own among his own voters. At the top, that doesn't exist. They said, "Well, he's entitled to it. He is an incumbent president. Of course, he's going to run for re-election. It should be his. Okay, let him let him fight for it, and then tr- and triumph easily. If right. there's no real dissent, then he can he can win." In it Just, I mean, he'll have an easier time of it on, in theory, on paper, sure. if their argument's correct. Then he even did um, last time around when he won the nomination. But they don't even want to have that test. There's no reason for it. There's no reason to think it would make him a, a weaker or less effective candidate um, to get a little bit of practice going up against in a debate and in, a, in an actual measured election, going up against the people who oppose him. One from the one from the left and one from uh, kind of uh, to a more centrist place, maybe mm-hmm. you could argue than him. and and see how that shakes out. I think it would be a very healthy exercise to sharpen him a little bit. He's trying to run the same campaign he did in the midst of COVID where he could just hide in the basement and that worked because everyone was so scared and frustrated about the state of the world and a little fed up with Trump at the time. People seem less fed up with him now. And what they're fed up with is Joe Biden.
1: And you're hearing even Dean Phillips express frustration. He was responding to reporters asking him what he thought were silly, goofy questions. And that's what provoked the blow up saying, hey, the only person who seems to be taking voters seriously, taking the idea that voters are demanding something of their politicians seriously, is in the next ten over with Donald Trump. And I do think he's putting his finger on something there, which is that, you know, hearing Dean Phillips and Marion Williamson just give those final pitches was a reminder to me that, oh, gosh, I guess the, D- the Democratic Party does stand for a couple of things, but we haven't heard anything about those issues, whether it's kitchen table issues, whether it's protecting Social Security, which is a bipartisan issue at this point. All of these things down the line, we're getting no airing out of those priorities, because there is no Democratic primary, and certainly those are not issues that are being discussed among Republicans. So Republicans are getting a free pass right now with this presumption that they must be with the people, with the majorities of Americans, on some of these issues that they absolutely are not populist about, because Democrats have no venue, no opportunity, no platform to really say, this is what— we're getting out of our party, and that's the kind of information that comes out when you have a primary contest. And that's what Joe Biden is denying the public, and frankly, denying the Democratic Party by refusing right. to participate.
0: And everyone's letting him get away with that. At the top, his his people think of Simone Sanders on MSNBC. Mm-hmm. All of the rest saying there there will be no mm-hmm. primary, definitively, um, endorsing uh, endorsing this behavior. You know, at the same time, they're saying that democracy itself is ex- is at stake. Trump represents the the. Apotheosis of—did I use that word correctly? <laughs> yeah. Apotheosis of democracy. Apo- apotheosis. Uh, apotheosis. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and and that they can't—you you can't like we won't have a country anymore unless he's defeated. And, and you can point to um, you know non-democratic things he's doing as well. I wish he had participated in the debates. He said I'm not going to participate in the he's debates. Not I Democratic. absolutely refuse to. He I think that would have great. New
1: Hampshire of their first in the in the nation primary spot. Yeah. Which I look, I think it's all silly. We should all have one voting day and get rid of all of this nonsense. Biden. Did. But, uh, sorry, Biden right? did. Yeah, I'm right. trying to do that. Sorry, yeah, but as saying, that's the point I'm trying to make that, that Biden really just doesn't have any credibility when it comes to undemocratic maneuvers to try to ensure his place at the top of the Democratic Party ticket. I'm sorry, and New Hampshire voters, I know that they're not— representative of all the voters in the country.
0: Well, they're more representative than Iowa voters.
1: Sure, sure, but to it's, 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 do that in particular to them when they are this more kind of um, Live free or die-ish kind of a state yeah. uh, more independent. Uh, My people are state. overrepresented in New Hampshire. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it just really is a, um, a You know a, a thumb in the eye of the public there And I wonder if it will hurt him in the longer term you heard uh, I thought it was so interesting to me to see that clip um, from MSNBC where you hear the pundit saying they're trying to lower expectations, because there could be a very bad outcome for Biden in this state. Now, he doesn't have to lose for it to look bad and to create a media cycle where suddenly everyone's forced to pay attention to Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips. And this is not a state that has exactly thrown its arms around Biden in um, uh, in the past. In 2020—I will remind everyone every day until the day I die—that Joe Biden came in fifth place in the Democratic primary.
0: Yeah. The question becomes if his showing is really bad, um, does that create any pressure to, I, I don't think to, to, to to change who the nominee is, but to have him participate in some future kind of debates or anything with the other candidates. I mean, frankly,
1: I'm doubtful. But I will say this, Um, you know, Marion Williamson doesn't have the financial resources that Dean Phillips has as a multimillionaire, maybe even a billionaire. And Dean Phillips has pledged to stay in into the convention. He's really playing the long game. Now he could, you know, be lying. I mean, people can change their minds or whatever. But what he has said is that he is basically going to sit there in the wings. Just in case. They could make him an offer he <is>.
0: Like Secretary of Commerce or something.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. But I I do think that the same way that people have these uh, concerns about whether Trump is going to cross the finish line because of his legal woes, you know, people do have ongoing and growing concerns about Joe Biden's health and cognitive fitness. And if those continue to germinate over the course of the summer, Dean Phillips wants to be in the position to say, hey, I'm ready to go. And an opportunity, uh, you know, some success in New Hampshire, getting a little bit more in front of the public, getting just a little bit of media attention could help set him up as as a legitimate legitimate alternative for uh, Joe Biden if he's unable to fulfill the job.
0: AOC was asked about who the backup choice might be. I think we're going to do a separate segment on that, so stay tuned. More rising right after this. We have some updates on the crisis at the southern border. An immigration deal drafted by Senator Chuck Schumer and James Lankford seems dead on arrival in the House as congressional Republicans balked at what they saw as another mass amnesty bill. Chad Pergram writes on X that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is supportive of Senator Lankford's work to, quote, finalize the most substantial border security policy in 30 years. That would come not a moment too soon.
1: Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has issued an emergency injunction allowing Border Patrol agents to cut wire Texas had installed along the border near a popular crossing at Eagle Pass. Litigation continues over other Texas immigration policies, including floating barriers in the Rio Grande alongside the incarceration of illegal immigrants by the state. Those cases have yet to reach the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah. So this decision uh, made a lot of conservatives on social media very angry yesterday. Uh, so it's, a, it's an injunction. The decision mm-hmm. party they haven't actually heard the case that will take place. But in the meantime, um, those uh, those barriers, those security measures that the state erected, can be taken down by the federal government. It was a five to four um, vote to to uh, to allow the federal government to do that with um, uh, Kavanaugh. And and Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and the the liberals, Elena Kagan, Sotomayor, um, uh, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson on one side, and then you had um, you had Alito, Gorsuch, uh, Thomas. Oh, actually, well, there was, no, there was one more. I'm, maybe I'm saying I'm misstating who. Maybe Kavanaugh uh, was on Roberts that side. Roberts and too?
1: Barrett. Who joined The three liberal
0: justices. Roberts and Barrett. So not Kavanaugh. Roberts and Barrett. Um, so I, that was perceived as kind of a—as a betrayal by—but uh, from uh, the conservatives on social media. Obviously, the issue is um, the federal, federal government rights. claims they right. have the jurisdiction, and it in the previous Supreme Courts have recognized that, ultimately, they have jurisdiction on the—on international border yeah, issues. Yeah, but this is a pretty so. clear
1: federal preemption issue. I'm surprised, frankly, it wasn't um, uh, more lopsided holding. I mean, just take for a second—like, imagine for a second that Texas is a democratic state. Imagine a world where democratic Texas says, we're going to have open borders. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, would you feel different about whether or not federal policy should preempt state policy, given the kind of national implications of what a state on a border might do? So this doesn't mean that, you know, federal policy is going to be one thing or another. And it certainly isn't an argument that— no one's going to be losing the border. It's simply an argument that if you're someone who's hoping Donald Trump is going to win or is looking at polls that's indicating that Trump, Donald Trump is going to win, that the president of the United States' federal mandate, the congressional mandate, is what decides border policy, not whoever happens to be in control of a state that happens to be on the border with another country.
0: I think on the constitutional merits, you're correct. Um, that's probably— frustrating and cold comfort for um, for the state of Texas that feels like, you know, the, the federal government is not willing to expend the resources to police the border, so we will step up and do it. And now you're saying we're not allowed to do it, which, again, I, I think uh, technically is, in fact, the case. That's how what the Supreme Court decided temporarily in this injunction and is probably ultimately what they will decide, is that it is a federal government issue. The federal government needs to fix the immigration system. It's their failure to act that puts us in this position. But
1: here's the issue. Biden has requested a $14 billion spend for the border. It's not getting passed because of Republican obstruction. So you can say that there's not enough commitment, there's not enough spending, there's not enough investment. But at the end of the day, what has been reported as happening is that Republicans know that being able to make a lot of hay about a border crisis helps them electorally, and they'd rather push this issue until the election in order to get the benefit of being able to say Joe Biden isn't doing anything about the border, which really raises the question about whether or not Republicans in Congress right now are putting the interests and safeties of of Americans before or after their political futures.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a bipartisan failure and a failure not to pair it with some improvements to the immigration system, because— Frankly, I mean, I have some—you know, I'm not as, as enthusiastic about the wall or very—I mean, people people have found ways around this. I don't want to spend a gazillion more dollars on security measures that are that fail or are overcome, when what we really need to do is fix the underlying incentives and the system for people to come here, so that they're not—they're not coming here in that— Way and then we're spending all this money on security measures that don't even work. I mean, it's a vast, vast I mean, border.
1: I, it, look, the problem is that the underlying incentives. I know as much as some Republicans like to frame it as uh, the incentive is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are standing at the border with a big welcome flag, saying everybody come to America. No, that's not, no, that's not what I'm no, saying no, at all. No, no, I said yeah. some Republicans. You yeah. don't even identify as Republican, but the the. The, the reality is, the incentives are created by the fact that we're the wealthiest country in the history of the world that has spent so much of its time and energy and money uh, applying sanctions to the global south, including South and Central countries in South and Central America, toppling governments, fomenting coups and the like, that have created disastrous conditions for people who are frankly, in walking distance because of the nature of the land bridge to the United States of America. And either you're going to cure that or you're not. But it's not going to happen by simply muscling up the border because the incentives are there. People live in such terrible conditions that they are willing to leave their homes, everybody they know, everybody who speaks their language and drag their children across in in inhumane conditions in order to for the hope of a better life. So between between that that I think fundamental issue that's not being really addressed by either party and the fact that part of what's precluding this $14 billion package going through, as Republicans saying, well, we don't—how are we going to pay for it, and trying to make a contingent on other cuts to other policies, some of which, i got to say, benefit the very Americans that they're saying are being hurt by immigration, these social safety net policies. That's why we have this uh, uh, lack of traction here.
0: I mean, I would like to simplify—clarify and simplify the actual system for coming into the country legally, because it is— hopelessly confusing. You should, I, I encourage everyone who thinks like, oh, why don't they just come here legally? Sit down, go through, um, you know, take a look at the website, all the different ways in which you could possibly qualify, and then you're not qualified. And you, I mean, it costs a lot of money. You have to hire an attorney to do it. Yeah, um, and I, it, it, is, it takes forever. A small number of people um, are admitted that way. Um, it is it is Byzantine and it is unnecessary and it's bad I mean for for people on the right It's an example of government bureaucracy getting in the way of people peacefully Look, promoting prosperity in their own
1: I, I, I've handled a pro bono immigration case successfully uh, and it was asylum claim on the basis of uh, persecution in the person's home country and the aspect of it that I found to be most Byzantine and what took so long is simply waiting on a response from the administration office. The backlogs are incredible, because we cannot get any funding to hire more administrative law judges and the personnel who administer these cases. You can't not spend money if you want there to be an asylum process that actually respects American rule of law and the values that we have emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty. There's no shortcuts around this. And I'm sorry, this is one of those instances where if you want the government to work effectively—in this case, the government being the entity that patrols our borders—you have to fund the government. And so I, I'm really interested to see what Republicans do about this. One right leaning commentator in particular I should mention uh, weighed in yesterday on Twitter, Tucker Carlson. And tweeted the following he said so it's unanimous everyone in power from the White House to the hedge fund managers to the Supreme Court of the United States Has decided to destroy the country by allowing it to be invaded that leaves the population to defend itself Where are the men of Texas? Why aren't they protecting their state and the nation calling it seems upon individuals to? take to the border and take things well, in their own and it's hands
0: the, the Supreme Court Emergency injunction was specifically saying, Don't do don't that do because that. you don't have the authority. Wow. And yeah, I never, I, I don't think very fondly of calls for other people to commit potentially crimes. Um, again, that's a, this is increasingly a habit in some right wing discourse to say, yeah, You. You—there's a faux populism to it. You go right. you know, march in the street. You go take up arms. I'm going to be tweeting from the comfort of right. my home and, and my and right. right Right-leaning
1: <laughs> a podcaster um, Bridget Faisty replied saying exactly that. Why aren't you, bro, get down here and fight the federal government <laughs>
0: like a man? Well, remember—yeah, listen, yeah, and especially because many of those same people will point out that the person— inducing you to commit crimes at the right-wing militia event (laughs) is often a Fed.
1: Tucker Carlson (laughs) is Ray Epps. (laughs) You it here first, folks.
0: More rising right (laughs) after this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is making the case for sucking it up and voting for Joe Biden. Let's watch.
4: Had it or hit it, Joe Biden. Hit it. You know, honestly, here's the thing. I think sometimes people want electoral politics to be we, we overly identify with ele- it's like if you vote for someone, they have to be the embodiment of you. And that's actually something that I think Donald Trump provided to a lot of people where it's like if you voted for him and if you were a Donald Trump person, like you, you want, like it, it symbolized so much, but I think what we have here in this situation is a more just honest thing. There are plenty of things that the president does that I completely disagree with. Um, I think, you know, right now what's happening in Gaza, I can't, I, I just I, I can't go on every single day seeing this I don't associate myself with what's happening, but at the end of the day. Um, we have to acknowledge that we, we just can't allow this fascist movement to grow in this country.
0: CBS recently interviewed voters not so keen on Joe, given his support of Israel's war on Gaza. One said that was a deal-breaker.
2: He's not listening to us. We are asking for a ceasefire at this time. Uh, It's a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. Too many lives are being lost at this time. I was never a single-issue voter. In fact, I used to argue with people not to be single-issue voters, but for me, this is a deal-breaker. Mm-hmm. Way too many lives have been lost. A
1: mm, community is in mourning after a Palestinian-American teenager raised in Louisiana was killed after he was allegedly shot by a settler in the West Bank, reports NBC News. The 17-year-old boy was visiting the region to learn more about his roots. Meanwhile, Columbia University released an update on the investigation into an apparent skunk gas attack made on Palestinian peaceful protesters. They say the NYPD is, quote, taking the lead role in investigating what appeared to have been serious crimes, possibly hate crimes. Now that investigation seems to have followed only The Intercept's reporting. No other mainstream news outlet seem to have covered it. And when The Intercept reached out to Columbia University to ask what they were doing um, about this attack, um, the response that they got, in which they cited in the article, was the um, initial pro-Palestine protest was unsanctioned. Therefore, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but we wash washed our hands. I mean, that's no. it was unsanctioned, and uh, so we're not doing the, anything the about the it. The campus
0: newspaper did a report. Oh, yeah, but, yeah right. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I, mean, I said mainstream, yeah. you, know, you no, know. No, no, no. So, well,
0: that, um, that's crazy. I mean, they have to—the police have to investigate—should— must investigate right. such but a the, thing. The
1: story has really yeah. escalated into this media story, which is why you know, but for the Intercept doing that coverage. Would Columbia have had any real, real response, or would they have taken the position that these pro-Palestine students didn't deserve any protection from the university because they were participating in an unauthorized protest? And then, what does that mean if universities yeah. can simply wash their hands of what's going on on their campus by designating various groups or activities as unauthorized, regardless of whether that's meritorious? So the, so the university, what does that mean?
0: Has banned. Um, the alleged suspects from the campus so far, pending an investigation. So they are investigating it. I mean, the, yeah. the police should now. investigate it. Yeah. It's a. I don't know, it's the Columbia. You know, sometimes there's a difference between well, Columbia's New York, so it has their own police um, department. They have some, some law enforcement yeah, now, officer has to take now, action here. To the look into now this. they're on the case. Now they're on
1: the case. But the question is, you know, th- is is this really demonstrating the power uh, of journalism? Um, to create, create actual uh, change and incentivize change. Um, but there's a lot to unpack here. Let's go back to the AOC news up top, because that was such a viral clip, I think, for obvious reasons. To me, it felt like an effort to intellectualize the reality that so many Democrats or people who are just on the broad um, kind of left or broadly populist feel so disconnected with Joe Biden. And this effort to say, well, it's weird, it's weird and Trumpy to feel represented by your presidential candidate felt like such a um, uh, like a, a coping mechanism for what the position she's in, because she said, she said specifically, I don't associate myself with what's happening in Gaza. I don't associate myself. But ma'am, you are a, an elected representative in Congress whose job it is to advance the interests of your constituents. And so for you to sit here and say that you are going to endorse, which she did immediately endorse Joe Biden as soon as he announced, um, if you're going to endorse and ask people to vote for the leader of your party, you are associated with that. And if you don't want to, then maybe it's time for you to act on what you said you were going to do when you were first elected into Congress, which is to say, I'm going to have an adversarial politics, and in any normal country, Joe Biden and I wouldn't be in the same party.
0: Yeah, I think she's totally given up on having an adversarial political relationship with the mainstream of the party. Um, You know, I found her comments there interesting because I actually— Agree with some of what she was saying mm-hmm. there in that it is not a a healthy um, phenomenon to identify necessarily with a political leader in a, in a personality way. Like this is not your family member, this is not your friend. It's the same way we tend to like um, uh, uh, like personalize celebrity. Oh, that must be a nice person. Sure. Cause it has a it has a like you should. Choose someone whose policies uh, agree with you—you agree with their policies and like that person. But we tend to have—like, Donald Trump obviously has some charismatic hold that, even if he's not substantially delivering, people like what he says and what the attitude is and just want more of that. That can be unhealthy, but what I found interesting was so I actually agree with that sentiment. But as soon as she and we didn't play the the rest that was a, it was like a five minute clip immediately after she says that remark and the the hosts who I don't know who they are, but they're I don't know they're what a, the show it's a, is, it's a, but
1: it's a fun podcast. I mean, they're not it's not a political podcast. So. One of those immediately after says,
0: yeah, Trump is like your alcoholic stepfather and Joe Biden is your grandfather who you just want to, like, bring in and have a hug with <laughs> No, no. That's exactly what AOC was just yeah. saying is not—it's not your father, right. it's not your grandfather, it's not a member of your family, Is a political figure who will disappoint you, yeah. who will take positions that you think are bad and, and don't hold. It's who, who has— the most opinions you like with or policy more than opinions is actually making the change you want. And if no one, then don't vote for them. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's not that I disagree with you. I just think it's a straw man. The idea that, people don't like Biden because they don't have a—you know, that they, they're looking mm-hmm. for a parasocial relationship. No, people don't like Biden because they see him as responsible for the genocide of 25,000 Palestinians that's happened over the course of three months. That's why they like don't like Biden. And for you to sit there as a self-described socialist and not have a mumbling word about that, to, to watch your friend and co-worker, Rashida Tlaib, be dogpiled and censured by our government her speech rights stripped away and being condemned by our Congress for Advocating for Palestinian rights, uh, and, and, and I'm not saying that AOC hasn't, like, offered support and called for a ceasefire and re- refrained from some of those votes or voted against some of those measures, but it seems like a half mm. measure. And in this moment, what is the difference? What does it mean for you to say, well, I don't agree with what they're doing to Rashida Tlaib, or I don't agree that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, if at the end of the day you're going to tell your constituents, you're going to stand up and say you should vote for the guy who is ringleading all of that, at at a time when there are a larger volume of independent candidates than there have been in recent history, where there's a Democratic primary that is being rigged by Joe Biden, and you're ignoring that fact, and you haven't said a mumbling word about the fact that someone like Marion Williamson, who entirely shares your— politics and your policy platform, someone like Cornell West, who entirely shares your politics and your policy platform, or uh, Jill Stein, are all in the race, and you won't even give them a nod. You wouldn't even say, well, I'm going to refrain from an endorsement because I think the Democratic primary po- process needs to play out. You are complicit, and no amount of words said on a fun podcast are going to make it so that you're actually dissociated from what's going on. Hmm.
0: That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll discuss the results from the New Hampshire primary and anything else that takes place in the next 24-hour period.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Take care.